Welcome back to Avanti Security Insights, where best practice cybersecurity meets real-world workplaces and roadblocks. I'm Ashley Stryker, host and cybersecurity content manager extraordinaire. And today, it's another Ashley and Daniel Spicer special. How are you? Hey, Ashley. I'm doing all right here. It's pretty good. I mean, the sun's out for once. It's been raining all week, so <laughs> I might go out and get some vitamin D. Yeah, we're, we're finally... Uh... Finally starting to to stop snowing here in Colorado, I think. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if that holds up. Oh. But it's looking it's looking a little bit like, um, well, at this point, we just switched straight into summer, I think. Oh, I, I, I've only been to Colorado once. I'll have to make it out there sometime again. Maybe when Maryland is super humid and I can swim through the air, that's when I make my escape. <laughs> um, but thank you so much again for coming on and joining us for a potentially awkward topic um i i if if you guys have been hiding under a rock you might not have heard um but there were some recent news stories about very high profile chief security officers um having and dealing with breaches and then getting sued for their handling of said breaches and they were recently sentenced and a whole bunch of stuff so i have been informed that i am not able to ask for direct commentary on any specific stories due to a wide variety of reasons. But I, I, I wanted, there's this meme that I keep seeing and I've been seeing, and just the recent news reminded me that CSO doesn't stand for chief security officer. It stands for chief scapegoat officer. And I, I, I just, I kind of want to explore why yeah. that is. Cause it, feels like in a lot of the coverage I've been reading about it and other incidents as well, it does really feel like chief security officers get the short end of the stick and why in the world would you ever want to be one? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess let's start with maybe an easier question that's inspired by some of the recent stories that's going around. What is the difference between an unsolicited bug bounty and covering up a breach. So it's still very difficult to prove that you're 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 trying to be a, a good party in these situations and, and report a, a real security issue so that it it doesn't become a bigger problem. Well, and part of the issue too, from what I understand from the researcher community, is that oftentimes you're just screaming into a void, yeah. right? And so there's a temptation on the part of ethical hackers, let's, let's just call it ethical hackers versus criminal hackers here, ethical hackers to prove that this is a problem and to demonstrate just how bad this could be for a criminal hacker. So where for you would you draw the line between an ethical bug bounty and extortion for exfiltration? I, I, think, <laughs> I think it even gets a, a bit more complicated than that, right? Um, because extortion, I, I would argue, is still a gray area in the middle between ethical, ethical hacker, you know, you know, third party reporter versus somebody who who is a bit more on, on not quite a criminal, but still malicious. Right. Because mm -hmm. it, it, where the lines are for extortion and payments is actually somewhere in between still. Um, really? I, OK, I, I think so. I, I definitely think so. So, um I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying like most people who follow um, a responsible disclosure process in my experience are typically the good guys, right? They, they really mm -hmm. are trying to 
um, um, help. And um, there is an expectation by some of them to receive some sort of compensation for, for that effort. One of the issues that we have, right, is the amount of information we actually receive from these parties in order for us to go through an investigation and confirm, yeah, it was just the good guy who hacked this and, and or, or broke into the system and, and nobody else and trace back what what said ethical hacker did during the time to confirm that he was ethical. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there there are some some lines that get really blurry there. Um, so, so for example, um, I've, I've seen some, uh, ethical hackers who, uh, exploit, a, a SQL injection vulnerability, right. Okay. And break in mm-hmm. through a, a website, um, and, um, access the, the backend database through unsanitized parameters and, um, uh, can, can show that they can see the schema of that database, Right. And then they report the schema as their evidence that they were successful. And that seems like a a pretty clear line, especially if they can give me information like IP address and when they did it so that I can, I can trace that. You can go and check your records. Exactly. I've got others who they pulled out an entire copy of the database and gave that to me. Oh my God. Um, and that is, and, and just so we're all speaking, this is previous experience. This is not, <laughs> yes, this is not, not actually Avanti. Avanti. These are cases where pre- my previous life as a consultant, I was asked to, to help with an investigation. And we were, one of the questions that, that our, our um, employer for, as a consultant would ask us is, was this a, a ethical hacker or was this malicious? Um, and so, um, you know, if you go and take the entire database, you, you didn't need to do that in order to, to prove, right? You're, you're now making it a, a bit more question. You're definitely heading into extortion, if not right. malicious, right? Because if you don't like how I respond, you can do all sorts of things with that database. And even if you do like how I respond, you can still do that, right? So this is, this is where we're you have to 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 apply some logic, right? And a lot of times, most times, you're not going to know enough about the party, right? In order to determine for, for sure if they're ethical or not. Um, and then you, you have to, to base it on the actions that they've taken in the logs and how forthcoming they are with information to determine whether or not um, they're, they're truly a good party, right? Sometimes people are just overzealous, right? And, um, you know, I get excited. Yeah. Well, when you think about the origin of hackers, right, you know, it's, it's a, can I do it and proving that you can do it rather than actual malicious intent. And, and sometimes that's still a challenge, especially for people who are are newer into ethical hacking, who just get excited. Like, man, I I got the schema. Can I actually get the entire database? Right. So um, just to drive that example home a little bit more, um, it it is definitely, it's definitely a challenge. So what do you do as a CISO when you're evaluating this and you think you have a, you have that gray area of the, let's say the overzealous newbie ethical hacker, right? Who you have a sneaking suspicion that they have now 
they downloaded the database because they're super excited and just wanted to see if they could. And they've reported to you in a way that was not exactly professional, clearly just excited and thinking about kudos. You suspect that this is that kind of a situation. But the evidence and the trail now is pointing more in, like if somebody without your experience is looking at this, they could go, we got hacked. Yeah. Like, how do you uh, I'll, I'll, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll be really clear. You know, there there are varying degrees of, of grayness in what's a ethical hacker. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think necessarily there are varying degrees of grayness in what is a breach. Um, in a, okay. a lot of places, we, we clearly define uh, a breach or security incident is access to data by an unauthorized party, right? And that could be as simple be. as, you know, an employee in your company who had, you know, permissions that were overly permissive or they were given an account that they shouldn't have, right? But in, in the case of a, a, a um, uh, external. external ethical hacker, that's that's still a breach. You just that's that's what it is. So if if they've taken the data out of the environment, right, or they you saw that they were able to to read that data, you, that that's a breach. And and if you uh, if that is customer data, you you have to report that, right? What does reporting look like? I know so. At Ivanti, we're a private company, and I know there's other requirements for like an SEC public reporting, and I know you've dealt with a lot of them as a consultant of both different flavors, varieties, and then it gets even worse if you're a government agency or a publicly yeah. funded sector infrastructure kind of thing. So, and I know the rules have been changing on this recently too, with different agencies getting it their three cents. It changes a lot. In. It depends on the company, and, and honestly, um, it gets very complicated when it, when attorneys <laughs> get involved. Um, especially, <laughs> um, breach coach attorneys, um, breach coach attorneys. Yeah. So, so a breach coach is, is an attorney, um, that is assigned to a security incident and they are basically required at this point from an insurance perspective. And th the truth of the matter is most breach coaches, not all of them. I, I know a few really good ones, but most of them are trying to limit damages that that is their job. Right. And so they're trying to um, protect the company, but honestly, I think they're more trying to protect the insurance companies. The in insurance a lot of company. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's the truth of the matter. And you know, what's really expensive R reporting a, a breach and getting sued for it. So, um, right. It definitely gets okay. more complicated, especially when you have a, a less sophisticated um, attorney or an attorney who is, really trying to do some mental gymnastics about avoiding these. And, and unfortunately, in my time as a consultant, you definitely run into those characters. That's okay. That's part of what's been an interesting subset of the conversation too, is that when you said that breach coach is there to protect the company or sometimes not so hidden, protect the insurance company that's on the hook to pay for this, whatever right. it turns out to be to a certain extent, the CISO isn't in there, right? The CISO is the guy reporting. Not only is he the messenger or she, yeah. they, I will use they, they're the messenger reporting now this breach that's now going to cost a buttload of money. They're also the one who's ostensibly supposed to prevent the impossible, yeah. right? Uh, so, so true story, some, something that I, I don't share very often. I said I would never be a, a CISO or a CSO. 
Um, really? Yeah, I, I, I said that. Um, man, uh, <laughs> it's been over 15 years for sure. When I, when I first said that, um, to, to one of my, my previous bosses, Bobby Adamala, he's like, I want to, I want to get you, uh, to the position that, that you can be, uh, sitting in, in my place because I, I think you have the potential. And I said, Bobby, with all due respect, I never want to sit in your seat. Um, <laughs> And one of the key reasons is the the chief scapegoat officer thing, right? Especially right. at the time that I was having this conversation with my old boss, um, it was very much that that position was very much a scapegoat, um, and you you spent more time negotiating your umbrella than you did negotiating your salary and your benefits, right? Oh my and gosh, it's a very really? disappointing thing. Wow. And so yeah. I, I never actually thought that I would be in this seat. And so that tells you two things. Um, I think both both of them being accurate. One, uh, Avanti is a much better place than a lot of other places I worked for as, as a consultant <laughs> to still see mm-hmm. that chief scapegoat officer still does exist. Um, but mm-hmm. also in, in general, bigger companies are getting better at understanding that the CISO here is is not going to immediately somehow prevent all breaches by their existence. That's just okay. simply not a possibility, right? Security issues are are an inevitability, right? And and I see my role here as limiting limiting their their frequency, limiting their their impact substantially, and then when they happen, handle them in the right way. And that of course does include reporting. But but to your point, Ashley, I think there's a lot of cases where um, the CISO is not really given the option to voice an opinion on whether or not reporting should happen. Uh, and, right. and in some cases, even when they do voice an opinion, they are ignored and still, uh, unfortunately, the scapegoat. And that is still very common in smaller organizations. And in some cases, if it's not the CISO in, s- in certain smaller organizations, it may be the CIO, actually. Okay. So there's two directions I want to go there. But I think the first is going to be what is involved with reporting and to whom do you report? And understanding, of course, your your breach coach is going to be very sensitive about all of this. Yeah. But yeah. like in general, what does it look like? It, and it, it's going to be different for everything. Uh, I'll be really honest. Um, so I'll, I'll just give you a, a few things to, that that I always want to consider, especially when I was a, a consultant. Is versus, are you in a regulated industry, right? What are your your legal requirements to report? Um, and and the, very closely tied to that, and my partner who who is no not here right now, but always always in top of my mind, right? What are your privacy uh, breach reporting obligations? Um, Bless her. <laughs> we're going to bring her on to the show one day, I promise. Um, so, yeah, once you let her out from that giant load, but that's fair. Uh, we'll bring her. Yeah. Um, no, so, so, so joking aside, though, um, um, privacy actually increases your, the likelihood of reporting um, substantially at this point. Um, we find out more about breaches. Um, to, to letters of, of privacy breach notifications to uh, governor offices than we do from public acknowledgement, I think probably even more than what we see in like SEC filings, right? Um, right. So, <laughs> so anyways. And who's, 
Well, whose privacy would need to be at risk? Like what exactly which database would our enthusiastic, ethical youngster have to have gone? Because if he gets my database of like acceptable content, what I have to to do with the privacy team. And and thankfully, the privacy team takes on a a majority of this work now for for us. Right. But, um, you know, before privacy teams were, were really a thing. What you have to do is figure out where all of the uh, uh, potentially uh, breached individuals are uh, physically located, and then you can oh, determine the, the requirements by by state or country. That is holy cow! It is a, a very intensive. So there was a breach that I was a part of. Um, it's very public, um, and um, the attorneys on that uh, had to review not only all of the U.S. states, but I, I think they were close to 150 different countries that they had to evaluate. Um, oh, my God. And doing notification took almost eight months. Kirk. Just, just eight months, just though. That's impressive. Yeah. Well, it, it, was a, it was a big team. It was a big team, not on, not on the forensic side and on the legal side, a very expensive team as you can imagine, right? Which is why we right. talk about the the cost of these privacy breaches. So, so regulated in, in industry, right? Industry. Your your mm-hmm. privacy obligations. Um, then mm-hmm. you know, public or private company. Um, mm-hmm. Those are are like the top three things you have to consider. And then after that, it is your individual um, requirements with your customers. And this is becoming a, an increasing thing. And, and a very complicated thing because everyone wants to control how this message gets out, right? So right. Um, if your customers, and, and I'm primarily looking at this from a B2B perspective, if your customers um, put terms in these, you can see all kinds of, of interesting things like who gets to determine whether or not a breach needs to be reported, who's responsible for the reporting, who has to pay for that reporting, whether or not you're allowed to report to anyone else, right? And it gets very complicated if you have multiple parties trying to make sure that the standard reporting language is the same amongst all of those. And then also you don't accidentally end up in in breach of those because you pulled in a third-party forensics or because you were obligated to report to a a government or... um, um, some some other um, some other regulation uh, regulator or entity, right? Um, it, be- mm-hmm. it becomes very complicated, um, and uh, I actually think that this has been more pushed also from the privacy side. Um, but it's it's a natural evolution of the uh, increased reporting regulations around security breaches. So it's is a lot so to consider. There's a lot that's at stake: time, attention manpower, reputation, um, all the thing, all the knock-on effects, financial insurance, there's multiple different people. And if you're in a regulated industry, I can imagine you have probably have government pressure about not wanting to be breached or seen as breached from a national security perspective, or, you know, there, there's so many secondhand influences, all of whom desperately don't want to breach in the first place. And I can imagine wanting to bury their heads in the sand that it happened at all to avoid that entire mess, right? There's got to be insane pressure on security teams in general, but specifically the CSO 
about keeping it quiet, not just controlling the message, not just making sure that it's accurate, but I can imagine there would be enormous pressure to dismiss or to sweep under the rug. Yeah. Have you heard about or seen cases where that may have happened? In in my consulting days all the time, Uh, honestly, it's, it's incredibly disappointing. Um, (laughs) um, uh, the, the good news is the increased regulation, um, makes that more difficult. Um, on, on the other hand, you know, the, the pressure doesn't intensify on security teams and and sometimes without the proper understanding or appreciation of what preventing a security incident actually entails in the first place. So, um, I, I, I think, um, this is something I actually talk to my downstream vendors and, and, and sometimes my customers, but mostly my downstream vendors a lot when they try to negotiate how, uh, what the, what the requirement is for reporting. Uh, there, there was a case mm-hmm. I worked, um, a long, a long time ago, um, insurance and, and, um, coaches were involved and, um, <laughs> you know, breach coach was involved. Yeah. And, and, uh, what, what it ended up happening is, um, a sensitive database with reportable data um, was queried. We had logs of that, that all of the mm-hmm. output was put onto a particular system, that it was mm-hmm. then compressed on that system um, in a way to make it easier to get off said system. Yep. And then about, you know, 15, 30 minutes later, those files were deleted with a tool for anti-forensics. Um, and there are no firewall logs. So there's no record (gasps) that the data left the system. So technically you don't have proof that it didn't leave the system, but you do have evidence of all of the prep work and the, everything before and after. Right. And can you imagine, but you have, can you imagine the, the dilemma that is now there, Right. Because it, oh, no. it is it is possible and valid, for example, for that data to to not left the system. Maybe it wasn't possible, but <laughs> but, but there was clear intent here. Right. And so, I mean, from a security perspective, you can just take lessons from how they got in and fix up that whole whatever, right? right? But from a reporting, can I ask what happened? Can you say what happened? I, I, can, t- what I happened? can tell you that the breach coach <laughs> was opposed to reporting. And that's where I'll leave it. Um, and I, I was uh, very loud about that. And this is a story that I now tell my vendors and my customers. I'm like, I, I don't actually care if you have evidence that the data left the system. If the threat actor ends up on a system that has Avanti data, you need to report now. That is my oblig. That is the obligation I am pushing on to you to help me make sure I understand the risk to to any data that a vendor of ours may hold. Um, I, I have another really interesting example here, and the absolute same scenario, but in the reverse. So uh, it was a, a ransomware incident on a on a very small company, and they had a very small internet pipe, and so the threat okay. actor. Um, for the ransomware tried to say that they had stolen all these backups and we're, we're talking like hundreds of gigabytes of data over the weekend that they, they had told me they stole. Um, right. but I found evidence of the threat actor 
accessing a getting jammed up at the they they actually accessed a um uh, a speed tester i found the i found the browsing history on the box <laughs> and and the way that nice. they stored the speed test results so that you can share it with somebody allowed me to mm-hmm. pull up the results that the thread actor used to test the speed of the pipe and we did the math it was impossible for them to get the data out it was it was literally <laughs> they got jammed up at the start it was literally impossible <laughs> and so we were able to forensically prove these guys just deleted all your data and, and encrypted it. They did not steal anything, right? You know, sometimes you, you end up in those positions where you can say, yeah, the, the data didn't actually leave the environment. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you, you have to be really, really confident. We, we did a lot of math, <laughs> a lot of math, a lot of real testing over, over several That's days amazing. to prove that it was never going to be possible. Um, and, and then we, we, we were able to get to a level of confidence that, that you had a ransomware incident, but you didn't necessarily have a data breach. Right. Right. And so the, the situation is different. Um, so it, it is difficult. It is difficult. And there is a lot of, so how can, to, to kind of put a bow on it a little bit, what are some, Knowing that you guys are flooded with information, mm-hmm. right? You're basically like the FBI of a company at any given time. And like the FBI hotline, that gets a lot of random tips. Yeah. You know, your job is like those agents to sort through all of the intelligence and triggers that you get to decide what's a real threat and what isn't. And occasionally you're going to run up against, I have exfiltrated all of your backups, but they didn't actually versus you have all of the evidence of a breach, but not the smoking gun. And you're going to miss things. There's going to be things that like FBI got warnings about nine 11, but in the flood of all of the tips they got, they had to make a judgment call that there were other tips that were more actionable. And all we see are two giant smoldering ruins of a tower, not all of the, 200 other incidents that were prevented because they acted on the other tips. Right. And so SEOs, CSOs are left holding that bag there. Right. So what would you recommend to those in senior security positions who are concerned that they might get pressure to cover something up like this or are being pilloried for something that genuinely could not have been foreseen yeah. or prevented with the tool set and the assumptions they had made. Yeah. Um, a lot of documentation, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> in, in the position that we're in, I, I think a lot of us are just used to CYA and that's a bit unfortunate. Yep. Um, but honestly, you know, the best advice that I can give starts at, at the hiring make sure part of your interview process for a C for, for a CSO or a CISO position. Um, or even if it's like, you're the only, you're the, the buck starts with stops with you from a security perspective. And you're like the director of security reporting in the CIO interview with the legal team, uh, understand, <laughs> understand where they stand on things, understand their, their competency, make sure you understand that 
their view of of the the regulations that the company is under and 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 check to make sure things are kosher there. I, I can't stress enough how important the legal and privacy partnerships are with security um, in these kinds of situations. So th- that is my my best and number one advice um, is is probably there. Um, uh, but you know, for for everything else, you know, if if you do get fired as a, a result of um, a security breach and you, you become that scapegoat. I, I think, um, there are ways to tell that story to, to other companies, to, um, to, to, to still be, a, a, a you know, a, a good person to, to hire. Um, and a lot of very successful CISOs and CSOs are the battle worn ones, right? People who have actually been through these fires and, and had to handle the breach. Um, if if you are a CISO that has never handled a breach, I mean, good on you. Um, con- congratulations, you're really lucky. But I, I actually don't know that that's a positive in this world anymore. I think that having that that first breach experience is is so critical and so important um, that you um, you shouldn't be afraid of 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 having that experience and going through that fire and earning your stripes if you if if you. Don't mind the, uh, the metaphor. I think that's really nice. I, I'm going to say this now with a recording stamp of the date and the publication day. I would never want to be a CSO. You guys have a rough gig. And I've just, I've really admired the way that you and Amanda and the rest of the security team have been very open at Avanti and actively in training and with us as end users and and the amount of buy-in that you have with the c-suite has been very lovely to see um and i would like to say that because we are a cybersecurity vendor that should just i shouldn't have to be amazed by that but i have a sneaking suspicion that it's it's a genuinely laudable situation so plus you guys have a great sense of humor. I think it's a little bit of gallows humor. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Daniel. I, I really, I knew this was a bit of a weird no, and um, no worries. potentially sensitive kind of subject. So I appreciate your taking the time to no, I, I, open the kimono. Absolutely. Honestly, this is, this is when we talk about transparency and security, this is definitely a place that we should be, be talking about. Um, uh, because, um, Companies and, and executives who, who just use the CSO as a scapegoat, um, use the, the CISO as a scapegoat, um, they're not doing anyone any favors. Um, that doesn't actually make the, the company better, unfortunately. No, that just means that they've now wallpapered over the glaring hole in yeah. the wall. So, well, thank you again. And, uh, Thank you for listening, and I hope none of your holes get wallpapers. Um, But if you do have a story about that or would like to share or have more questions for Daniel, um, find us. Uh, Ivanti happens to be on just about every social platform except possibly Mastodon. Crossing my fingers for that one. Um, You'll find us at GoIvanti, I-V-A-N-T-I. Um, And if you liked what you heard, if you need to cheer up a coworker um, who's under some pressure themselves right now or 
thought this was an interesting food for thought, please feel free to share. Um, the more people who download, the more the algorithm likes us and we can get this message out to more people who need to hear it. So with that, thanks again for listening. We'll talk soon. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.